Hello, I'm Weemala and today is Tuesday, October 25th. We are having a, a, it's a kind of a blue, pale blue sky today, but I know in an hour or so we're supposed to have rain for the rest of the day. So we need the rain, that's a good thing, but We've gotten spoiled with our sunny days. So I want to read with you and then sit. And we're reading from Pema Chodron's new book, How We Live is How We Die. And this is, um, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, read the entire book. I'm going to skip around, but there's one story that I really want to read. I think, oh, it's not very long. I had two stories connected. So the story I really want to read is actually what is chapter six in the book, skipped a few, although it's a wonderful book to read. Um, I should save some for you to read on your own because you probably will want to grab a copy of this book at some point. This is called Mingyur, Mingyur Rinpoche's Story. And most of you have probably heard or know of Mingyur Rinpoche. He's a really well-known teacher and also uh, is one of the creators of the Turgar group. So it's, uh, he's teaching the Buddhist teachings as universal teachings, which we know they are. But he has a, uh, it comes from a family of very famous Tibetan uh, teachers. So I think uh, Pema Chodron knows him personally. So I'd like to read this. So this is his story from Pema Chodron. To make the topic of disillusion a little less esoteric, I'd like to tell a story about someone who actually was prepared through study and practice to recognize and experience the disillusion process during a near-death experience. This is a story recounted by Yongge Mingpar Ming Ming. I know I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Mingyur. Okay, this is a story recounted by Yangge Mingyur Rinpoche in his book, In Love with the World, A Monk's Journey Through the Bardos of Living and Dying. Mingyur Rinpoche, a very popular teacher from an illustrious family of Tibetan teachers, was the abbot of a monastery in Bodhgaya, India the place where the Buddha attained enlightenment. For the first 36 years of his life, he had been sheltered and privileged. In childhood, he was identified as a tulku, a reincarnation of a previously enlightened teacher. His father, the great meditation master, tulku Urgyen, Urgyen Rinpoche, brought him up as both son and student. At home in Nepal, his parents showered him with love 
and affection and never let him go anywhere by himself. Even after he left home be to begin his formal studies, he was always protected by his role and status. This continued into adulthood. Before age 36, he had never been alone outside in his entire life. Then in June 2011, he got up in the middle of the night and left the monastery to embark on a wandering retreat that would last over four years. He had done many retreats in the past, including one for three years, but they had all taken place at monasteries or hermitages. The wandering retreat had been a dream of his from a young age. He had long been inspired by stories of ascetics living freely and spontaneously, taking whatever food or shelter might come their way. All he had with him were two Buddhist texts, a small amount of money, and the clothes he was wearing. No one knew he was leaving. When his attendant came into his room the following afternoon, he found a farewell letter in which Mingyar Rinpoche expressed his wish to follow the examples of the wandering yogis of the past, such as Milarimpa, who spent most of his life meditating in remote caves and sacred sites. And to continue to guide his students, Mingyar Rinpoche had left a well-organized course of study using simple meditation instructions along with hundreds of hours of recorded teachings. Before he left the monastery, his vision for the retreat had a touch of the romantic, caves and beautiful lakes and pleasant train rides. His only plan, his only plan was to take the first train to Varanasi, the ancient city on the Ganges, where Hindus and Buddhists have done spiritual practice for millennia, millennia. Whoops, let me just make a change, okay. But first he had to figure out how to buy a train ticket because he'd never done that before. Then when he got on the train in the cheapest compartment, his overwhelming experience was aversion. It was incredibly crowded. Everyone smelled bad and looked bad. He could see lice in people's hair. No one paid any respect to his Buddhist robes. He got pushed and shoved just like everyone else. But he kept saying to himself that this was what he wanted, to have everything fall apart and to have his normal way of being not work at all. He wanted to test his practice in the middle of all this. And what's so inspiring to me is that he didn't just cruise through his experience. He was overcome with fear and aversion, just as you and I would be. He used every practice he'd ever been given, not caring if it was beginning or advanced. In whatever situation that came up, he did everything he could to stay present and work with his mind, even if he felt disgusted or afraid to the point where he almost couldn't bear it. Not too long after that train ride, he went to Kushinagra, the place where the Buddha passed away. 
He spent most of his time meditating in a park commemorating the Buddha's death. For a little while, he had money to stay in a guest house and buy street food, but when that ran out, he had to start sleeping outside and begging. During this transition, he stopped wearing his maroon Buddhist robes and began wearing the saffron rose robes of a sadhu, a Hindu renunciate. He considered this change to be an important part of going forward into the unknown. The Buddhist robes had always sheltered him and given him a sense of identity, and he wanted to go beyond all his usual reference points with nothing to hold on to and nothing to hide behind. Begging was very hard for him. It pushed against everything in his being to have to go up to someone and ask for food. The first place he begged was at a food stall he'd been, go- he'd been going to regularly. The manager noticed his, changes, uh, his change of clothes and said, You're Hindu now. Then the man- manager matter-of-factly told him to come back in the evening when he put out all the food scraped from plates for the beggars. He spent much of the day med- meditating on his embarrassment, using the teachings to work with that emotion, and by the, re- by the time he returned to the stall, he was ready to accept the leftovers. He was so hungry that he said he enjoyed that meal more than anything he'd ever eaten at a five-star hotel. His first night sleeping outside was near the cremation stupa, a large mound of dirt containing the relics from the Buddha's cremation. He couldn't sleep because of the mosquitoes, and toward morning he developed stomach cramps. When he was meditating the next day, he started having diarrhea, and by evening he was vomiting. As things got worse over the next few days, he realized he was dying. The first sign he recognized was the earth element dissolving into water. He began to feel so heavy, it seemed his weight might push him below the surface of the earth. As another sign of this disillusion, his vision became blurry. Then he felt around his mouth with his tongue and there was no saliva. Though he was too dehydrated for fluids to be leaving his body, he understood that the water element was dissolving. Now he thought, it's happening. This is my big chance. Can you imagine having such a fearless attitude? Then he became very cold, and since the air outside was extremely hot, he took this as an unmistakable sign of the fire element dissolving. Then as the air element dissolved into consciousness, he felt like he was being inflated like a balloon every time he inhaled. He still had a sense of himself as an individual person going through an experience. There was still a feeling of Mingyar Rinpoche observing and tracking what was happening. But as he described it, in his, his conceptual mind was draining away, and at the same time, his true nature was becoming more and more vivid. Then at one point, he almost blacked out. 
and flashes of white and red appeared before his mind. What occurred next was beyond anything he had ever experienced. After the fact, he found it nearly impossible to describe in words, but his book, and he's written, Mignard Rinpoche has written a book about this, these, this traveling. His book gives you the flavor of it. There was still a bright awareness, but it was not conceptual in any way. There was no self and other, no inside and outside, no time, no direction, no life, no death. And at the same time, everything was made of love. The trees, the stars, the entire world was made of love. Before this experience, he had spent a great deal of time meditating on the sky-like nature of his mind. So to some extent, he was prepared. His years of training enabled him to understand what was happening. But his recognition of his mind's nature had never been so complete. Later, he guessed he was in this state for about five hours. He knows it was dark when he entered this non-conceptual phase and light when he came to. But this coming to didn't happen in the ordinary way of someone passing out and then recovering consciousness. If someone else had seen him, they probably would have thought he'd passed out. But in a deeper sense, he was awake the whole time, awake to cloudless awareness, to the universal open mind. Eventually, he did come back to his body. This wasn't a decision he made. There was no sense of I involved. But somehow, a movement of mind occurred based on recognizing his work as a teacher wasn't done. He felt himself re-entering his body. His normal breath returned and his body warmed up. When he opened his eyes, everything appeared transformed. He said the trees were green as usual, but they were shining. He was still very dehydrated, so he got up to go to the water pump. Then he really did pass out. And when he awoke, he was in a hospital with an IV in his arm. How he got there is a whole other fascinating story, which is in Mignard Rinpoche's book. So this is a story of someone actually going through the process of the elements dissolving and experiencing the clouds parting to reveal the wide open infinite sky of his mind. Mignor Rinpoche, of course, came back, so he couldn't tell us what would have happened next had he stayed. But as it is, this story illustrates the power and importance of continually training in staying open and in familiarizing ourselves with the everlasting in-betweenness of life. From the night he left the monastery and throughout every experience he had over the next four years, he tried to live fully in the wondrous flow of birth and death. His near-death experience was just one part of that flow. And as soon as he was well enough, which was before the doctor thought he was well enough, he ventured back out into the complete unknown with no security other than his big sky mind. For me, nothing about the practice of Dharma is more inspiring 
than seeing how it leads to such fearlessness. I think that's a wonderful story. I haven't read that his book, and I and now I'm definitely going to get this book, get his book from the library or uh, however I can find it, because it sounds wonderful. So why don't we we sit? And this is a, this can be a contemplation to just let his experience kind of float around in your own head and think of his, I think the, the importance of this teaching from him is uh, a lot about his fearlessness, his fearlessness, not only of taking on this, uh, this journey, but uh, having this experience of feeling as though he were going through the stages of dying and uh, how he just stayed with it. He didn't, he didn't, uh, he, he, he was fearless in the face of it and had a, had a beautiful experience. And from what I've read about him and articles I read years ago, um, he w- he was a very anxious child. He had, and I guess if he was living in such a sheltered life with such uh, important uh, Buddhist teachers, I, he was he was living kind of like the Buddha must have lived as a child, very sheltered. And uh, he was, it, but it, but it created within him a lot of anxiety. So, what it, that makes it even more incredible that he set out on this journey away from everything. So that's a lot that we can sit with, just just being with that. So let's sit. We have we have about ten minutes to sit, so not much time, but it can definitely be time to just let your body relax and uh, go into that quiet, tranquil state. Let's begin by being aware of the breath. And let it help you calm down. Be aware of your body. Do you feel it settling? Do you feel it just ah, letting you be really present in the moment?
knowing how to relax your body. Using the breath as our anchor. Just let your thoughts come and go. No need to repress or suppress those thoughts. Just see them rise and then see them fall away when you don't focus your attention on them. Keep relaxing and keep letting go. Let go of all the burdens you're carrying around. Just for right now, see how much you can just let drop away. When your mind becomes distracted, just come back to your breath. 
And let's end our practice with a, just a few moments of loving kindness, sending that friendliness and love, uh, gentle nurturing to yourself first. May I be well. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. Remember how important it is to nurture yourself first. And then if you feel up for it, if you you can continue with yourself or you can send this out again. Just like inhaling it for ourselves and exhaling it out to others. So may all beings everywhere Be well, be content, feel safe, and may all beings everywhere live in peace. And we can think especially about war-torn countries, Ukraine, there's so many other small countries and other large countries uh, wanting to perpetuate this model of war for solving problems or gaining control over others. Send loving kindness. May all beings be content. May all beings want to live in peace. And may everyone being affected by climate change with dramatic weather episodes and so much damage and loss of life, may all of those living beings find peace. And for our intentions, may everything we do and say and think today be done not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all living beings. So, thank you. Thank you for being a big part of my practice. And I'll see you Thursday.